Well, good afternoon, St. Paul's. It's good to be here. So, yeah, as Keith already said, I had a very exciting first 15 minutes or so on the job. I came in for my first meeting as a leadership team meeting uh, with uh, Bethany and Lori and Keith. And uh, we were upstairs. We sat down. We prayed. Keith handed out the agenda for the meeting. And then the fire alarm went off. And I had the reaction that I think most of us have when a fire alarm goes off, which is like slight concern, but more kind of annoyance, because it's like, it's probably nothing, you know, that's what always happens. But Keith was like, oh, the pizza, because he had put a pizza in the oven. So he goes to run downstairs, and then the three of us that were left were sitting there, and I had that moment where I suddenly went, oh yeah, I'm the pastor. I, I, should, <laughs> I should probably go downstairs and see what's going on. So... Like, I went down probably about, you know, like five seconds after Keith, and when I, when I rounded the corner, I see Keith running back towards me, and he's like, it's a real fire! <laughs> so he grabs the fire extinguisher off the wall, and I came around the corner, you know, to be able to see, yeah, sure enough, it's, it's a real fire. There was uh, flames coming up from the stovetop and on the cabinets. So Keith, like a boss, I mean, Keith grabs the fire extinguisher off the wall, and he runs right over to that fire, and he puts it out. <laughs> and you... <laughs> so, <clears throat> now, it was impressive. He told me he had never used a fire extinguisher before. You would not have known it. I've never used a fire extinguisher before, so I was happy when he grabbed it, and I saw him run towards it, because I was like, wow, he, he knows what he's doing. But it was the first time he'd ever used one. So what had happened was that there was some stuff on the stovetop. Keith had accidentally turned on the stovetop, and the stuff caught fire. Now, even though Keith is technically responsible for the fire <laughs> starting, I think he deserves more credit for putting it out, because starting it was a mistake, stopping it was intentional. And we all deserve more credit for our intentional actions rather than our unintentional ones. Right? So thank you, Keith. Because <clears throat> I learned nothing in seminary about how to put out a fire, believe it or not. <laughs> I, I received not one minute of fire safety. So I was not ready for that. Um, so I hope nobody is taking it as a bad sign that within 15 minutes of me assuming the pastoral position, the church almost burned down. And I had to wonder about that a little myself, to be honest, but... Uh, on Thursday, the uh, guy came in who was going to check to see how much the damage was and give us an estimate, the uh, adjuster, I believe he's called. And he came in, and I, I joked with him. I was like, yeah, it's my first, my first week here, and, you know, I hope this isn't divine judgment. And uh, he, he goes, nah, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. <laughs> That's right. It turns out this guy, his name is Ernie, and um, he's not even from near here. I mean, he's from Connecticut, but a ways away. And the guy had been a pastor for like 15 years before becoming an adjuster. So he had like a nice long conversation with me. And then before he left, he he's, like put his hand on my shoulder and he's like, can I pray for you? So he prayed for me. And I just think it's cool the way God works, you know. So I took that as a good sign. But this week, I keep thinking back to that moment when Keith said, it's a real fire. It's a real fire. 
And I thought, I hope those words were in some sense prophetic. Because isn't that what we want people to say when they come to St. Paul's? You know, hey, I visited that church on 195. I wasn't expecting much, but it was a real fire. Like, I encountered God there. So, as my first major leadership action here, I'm going to propose this logo change. <laughs> St. Paul's Church, catchphrase, it's a real fire. None of that counterfeit stuff, no smoke and mirrors. It's a real fire. <laughs> so, anyway, I do like to think that what happened this week is a sign that St. Paul's is moving into a new season where God's presence and power are going to be revealed in exciting ways. But even more than that, <clears throat> this incident is a sign that we must never leave anything on that stovetop. <laughs> Write that down if you're taking notes. That's what the adjuster said. So, anyway, I am very excited to be here, and I'm looking forward to getting to know all of you. Um, don't be shy. I'll try not to be shy. I've heard this is a church of introverts. <laughs> I'm kind of introverted myself, but um, I'm sure we uh, can all get to know each other and have fun doing it. So, I'm looking forward to that. Um, now, I've been in churches before when new pastors arrived, and I know that for a church, the arrival of a new pastor is an exciting time. It's kind of like the beginning of a new year. It feels like there's new and exciting possibilities. Uh, it's a fresh start, and it's a time that's characterized by a lot of hope. There's a hope that things are going to be better than they've been before. Uh, and if you're like me, you're hoping for certain things. You're hoping that we'll be united in vision and purpose. Um, you're hoping that we'll see new people come to faith. Maybe you're hoping that we'll see some miracles. Uh, you're hoping that membership will increase and that skeptical people will come here and they'll become believers and hurting people will come here and they'll find healing. Broken people will come here and they'll find wholeness. And those are great things to hope for. That's what I'm hoping for. I hope that you are hoping those things with me. Uh, now, not to be a downer, though, but I think we can all agree that hope is not always fulfilled, right? I hoped that my 1998 Toyota Sienna, Sienna minivan would last me through seminary, but it only made it through two years. I, uh, I hoped I'd be a published writer before I turned 30. Still hasn't happened. Uh, I hoped that my friend's infant daughter would survive her medical complications last month, and she didn't make it. But other times, hope is fulfilled. I hoped I would be able to get a pastoral job in New England after seminary, and that happened. I hoped that Keith would put out the fire, <laughs> and he did. So hope is sometimes fulfilled, and sometimes it's not. And so that raises the question, well, what hopes are secure? What hopes are certain? What does God want us to be absolutely 100% confident about? Scripture talks a lot about hope. The Apostle Peter wrote that as believers, we have been born into a living hope. So in evangelical Christianity, we use that phrase, born again, a lot, right? And Jesus used that phrase, born again. Well, part of the essence of being born again is being born into hope, becoming a person of hope. 
But when the Bible talks about having hope, it's not in the same way that we often talk about having hope. This here is the the Greek word that gets translated as hope in the New Testament, elpis. And elpis has a sense to it that the English word for hope often doesn't. There's a certain connotation. So usually when we say, I hope, what we mean is, I'm wishing. Like, I hope that the Red Sox win the series. We don't actually mean that we're we're sure it's going to happen. We're just saying, I'm wishing that that's going to happen. But elpis is much stronger than that. Elpis doesn't just mean I'm wishing. Elpis means I have a joyful and confident expectation that this is going to happen. I remember around this time last year, I had an experience of this kind of hope, of elpis. As I'm sure most of you remember, last year was snowiest winter on record in Boston. And uh, on the days when my classes weren't canceled, every now and then, uh, I would walk to class, I would walk to the academic building, and the snow on both sides of me was up as high as my head. You can't really see that real clearly from that picture, but that was the case. And about this time last year, even though I liked snow, I had reached a point where I was just done. Like, I had had it. I had had my fill. I was tired of snow. I was tired of... Uh, you know, driving in the car and stopping and trying to look around mounds and not being able to see where I was going. I was tired of, like, just feeling cold air all the time when I was outside. Tired of feeling like I was in this adversarial relationship to the weather, you know, like you're at war with the air every time you go outside. And I had this moment at the beginning of March where I experienced just this real sense of joy because it hit me that no matter what, in a month, maybe a month and a half, all the snow is going to be gone. And it wasn't just wishful thinking, right? It was a guarantee. Like, of course it's going to happen. It happens every year because, you know, the earth is going to tilt back towards the sun, the northern hemisphere, and when that happens, temperatures are going to rise, and it's always the case that snow melts at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. So, it's a guarantee. And even though I was surrounded in that moment by more snow than I'd ever seen in my life, I had this real joy because I just knew it's going to go away. I just got to wait a little longer. So that's, that's a joyful and confident expectation. That's Elpis. So there are certain things that God wants us to have that kind of hope about. That hope that is as confident as the hope that spring is going to come, as confident as the hope that the sun is going to set tonight and it's going to rise again tomorrow morning. So what are those things? Which hopes are certain? What can we count on God for 100%? Well, this afternoon, I'd like us to recognize that there's at least three things, three hopes that God wants us to have in the elpis sense of the word. And these are the hopes that are supposed to be the foundation for all our other hopes. So the first one is the hope of everlasting joy. God wants us to have a hope of everlasting joy. Now what I mean here, more traditionally said, is the hope of heaven. But when we, when we think of heaven, we tend to think of like clouds and harps and that sort of thing, and that's not really that appealing. But the reason heaven is so exciting is because it's really a hope of everlasting joy. 1 Peter 1, 3-4 says, 
Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. Now what Peter is saying here is that we ought to have a confident expectation that after this life, heaven is going to provide us with an everlasting gift. He describes what we're getting as an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. It's permanent. And I love that Peter uses three words to hammer that home. Perish, spoil, or fade. And I looked those, up, those words up in the Greek because I thought maybe there's some shade of nuance between the three of them. And you know what? There isn't. They all basically mean the same thing. So it's permanent, permanent, permanent. That's what Peter's trying to get across. And that's an incredible hope that we're given because there is nothing in this life that's permanent, permanent, permanent. Right? Everything we own, including our own bodies, is perishing, spoiling, fading. But we have been born into a living hope that there is a heaven, and waiting for us there is an everlasting inheritance. There's a blessing, there's a joy that will never be taken away. It's a great hope. Now, I've heard some people complain that the hope of heaven, if it's focused on too much, can lead us not to focus enough on this life. This is the concern that if we're too heavenly-minded, we won't be any earthly good. And it's the concern that if we're too focused on pie in the sky, then we're never going to make pie on earth. But I don't think we need to be too worried about that. I think there's, a, there's some truth in being concerned about that. Um, it's healthy to be warned about that. But really, I think it's actually more dangerous when we don't have a confident expectation of pie in the sky, as it's derogatorily said. Because if you don't have a confident expectation of pie in the sky, pie after you die, then the only pie you're ever going to get is pie on earth. If the only pie you're ever going to get is pie on earth, then you're going to be more tempted to steal your neighbor's pie or trample over him to get it because it's your only chance to get pie. And whenever you invest your time and energy in getting that pie, whether that pie is a career or a relationship or whatever, and it doesn't end up tasting as good as you expected, there's not going to be anything left to console you. So the hope of heaven this hope of everlasting joy in the next life, doesn't have to keep us from living fully in this life. In fact, it actually has the power to free us to live in love fully. So God wants us to have this confident expectation that the best is yet to come after this life ends. For a follower of Christ, this hope should be as sure as spring, as sure as sunset and sunrise. The second hope that I want us to recognize is the hope that God's presence will always be with us. The hope that God's presence will always be with us. When I was here back in January, I read one of my favorite passages, and I want to revisit it again now. It's Luke 11, 11 through 13. Jesus says, Which of you fathers... 
if your son asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake instead. Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So here we have a promise that to those who ask, God will give his Holy Spirit. In other words, God will give the gift of his presence. And we can be confident of that, right? Jesus is like, of course God's going to do that. If you ask that, of course he'll do it. So what do we mean by the gift of his presence? Well, I'll start by saying what the gift of his presence is not. The gift of his presence is not the gift of an easy life without conflict or hardship. It's not the gift of a life that's free from cancer or heart disease or dementia. But it's the gift of his companionship, no matter what life throws at us. Now you might say, well, hold on. What good is the gift of his presence if it doesn't guarantee that things in my life will be easy? You know, what good is the gift of this presence if it doesn't guarantee that I'll be physically healthy or financially prosperous or well-liked or good-looking? Well, the answer is that it actually does do a lot of good because it provides us with strength and joy and peace in the midst of all those hardships. And those of us who know the Lord know what it's like to experience that. Um, as an analogy, I think of Sam and Frodo in The Lord of the Rings. I actually saw an article recently that said pastors need to stop referring to Lord of the Rings all the time in their sermons because it's getting kind of cliche. But (laughs) I appreciate your support. Um, (laughs) So I'm going to do it anyway. But, you know, think of Sam and Frodo. So as most of you remember, Frodo had the responsibility of carrying the ring to Mordor and destroying it. And Sam was determined to stick with Frodo throughout that entire journey. Now, did Sam's presence eliminate all the bad stuff that happened to them? No, of course not. Like, the big, ugly spider still attacked them and wrapped up Frodo in all the webbing, and Gollum was still a pest. Like, all that stuff still happened, but... Anyone who has watched those movies or read those books knows that Sam's presence makes this huge difference, makes all the difference in the world. He makes the journey bearable. And he does play a critical role in helping Frodo to complete the journey. Now, the analogy isn't perfect here because Sam's not all-powerful the way God is. Um, But the point I'm trying to make is that loving presence, companionship, makes a tremendous difference. It has the power to make a hard journey bearable. And not only bearable, but actually joyful. And just as Frodo could count on Sam's presence with him, we can count on God's presence with us. I was thinking, you know, about this idea that loving presence makes all the difference. And it reminded me of that phrase that probably all of us have heard at some point. um, I don't want to die alone. I've heard that sentiment expressed on TV shows and in movies and music and in real life, too. Um, And, of course, what people are expressing in that statement is this longing for loving presence. They're saying, I don't want to have to go through my last moments on Earth 
without companionship. It's almost like people are more afraid of dying alone than actually dying. Because loving presence makes a difference. And what God has promised us is that his loving presence, come hell or high water, will be with us. And that makes a difference. And we can have an Elpis type of hope about that, that as sure as spring, as sure as sunset and sunrise, he's with us. And the last hope that I want us to recognize is the hope of his provision. The hope of his provision. 2 Peter 1, 3-4 says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. This verse has actually really ministered to me personally. Back when I worked with Campus Crusade, I was given a summer assignment once where I was supposed to lead a group of students to Milan, Italy for a five-week-long summer project. And uh, except for Canada, I had never even been out of the country before then. I didn't even have a passport, and I definitely couldn't speak Italian. And um, I had never been a team leader like that. So I felt like I was way in over my head. But I made this verse my theme. I would say it to myself every day, and like every time something happened where I didn't know what to do. You know, his divine power has given me everything I need for life and godliness. And my paraphrase for this verse became, if you need it, God will give it. If you need it, God will give it. It's like, it may be hard to believe that, but just take a moment to let that sink in. That is an incredible promise. Now, what we think we need isn't always what God thinks we need. But this verse promises that whatever we truly need will be given. Because the divine power has given us everything that we need for what? For life and godliness. Now, what does that mean, life and godliness? Well, it doesn't mean that God's given us everything that we need to be rich and healthy by the world standards. But it does mean that God's given us everything that we need to be rich and healthy by his standards. He means that we've been given everything we need in order to live a life that pleases God, that glorifies him. And that's what a truly abundant life is. What he's saying is that God has given each one of us what we need to experience that, a life that glorifies and pleases God. So let's think about this in the context of St. Paul's. God has given St. Paul's everything it needs to please and glorify him. Whatever we truly need to fulfill the mission that God is calling us to right now, God's given. And God wants that to be a sure hope for us, an elpis hope. Today he's given us what we need, and tomorrow he will too. So the shorthand version of these three hopes that God wants us to have a confident expectation and help us hope in his heaven, in his presence, and in his provision.
Heaven, presence, and provision. So, what about those hopes that I mentioned at the beginning? The hope that our church will grow, the hope that new people will come to faith, the hope that miracles will happen, the hope that we'll be united in vision and purpose. Well, I can't stand here and promise with Elpis hope that all those things are going to happen in the upcoming months and years. But, but, I will say this. I believe that a a community of people whose hope is set on these three things, his kingdom, his presence, his provision, is a community that is empowered to do great things. If we can really get that deep in our bones, that we have an Elpis kind of hope, that kind of hope that, you know, in a few weeks it's going to be spring, or that the sun is going to set tonight, that same level of hope about those three things, there's power in that, because it affects everything about the way we live. So if we have a steadfast Elpis hope, that everlasting joy really does await us, a steadfast Elpis hope that God's presence is with us always, a steadfast Elpis hope that God has given us everything that we need to fulfill the mission he's called us to. If we live and act in light of those things, I'd say our chances are very high that our secondary hopes will come true. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your promises. We thank you, God, that there are hopes that you want us to have that you are sure to deliver on. God, I pray that we be transformed by hope. By hope in the goodness of what's to come after this life by hope in the reality that you're with us no matter what, that your companionship is there, Um, and by hope in the fact that you're going to give us everything we need to make it through every day and to fulfill every calling that you've placed on our lives. I pray, God, that we would have a confident expectation and that we'd have a joyful expectation. And we just thank you, Lord, for what you're doing here in St. Paul's and what you're doing in each one of us, God. We just ask that you fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord. Uh, Transform us from the inside out. We ask that we be a blessing to this community and the world. In Jesus' name.